Um, we're coming to the, the end of the sermon, and as we've said before, uh, Jesus is really, really calling, calling, he's calling for a decision. And so I'm going to read now uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. And we'll come back next week and talk about the authority of Jesus. We're going to talk a lot about authority this morning. Uh, but we're going to talk about this, this Messiah and, and what that means next week. And so we'll look there at verse 28 next week. But let's read now Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would delight in your word. Lord Jesus, that we would delight in your words and your teaching, not just believing that they are true, but God, by your Holy Spirit, they would transform our minds and our lives. We would seek to apply our lives to your word. And I pray, God, that in the preaching of your word, you would be clear. Feed your sheep. They need you. I pray that you would use me to bring this message this morning. Move me out of the way, Lord. Let your word be heard and understood and believed unto eternal life. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has illustrated this point a few different ways. He calls for a decision here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says there's two gates, there's two roads, two paths, there's two trees, two different kinds of fruit. And now we have two houses with two different foundations. And what's the point he's trying to make? What's he trying to get across by using these illustrations and examples? What's, what is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching that Heaven is not for hearers. That's what the text says, isn't it? I just read that. Those who hear and don't do come to destruction. That's Jesus' point here, and so that's the main idea of the sermon this morning. Heaven is not for hearers. It's for doers. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock, he says, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, verse 27. So Jesus' teaching here could not be more clear. There's a significant difference between hearing and doing, isn't there? James says in the first chapter of his letter, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's the same warning here. Do not be deceived. Heaven is not for hearers. It's for doers. 
We, we have to actually apply Jesus' teaching, not just accept it and, and appreciate it as good teaching. And Jesus sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs here, right? Uh, because Jesus is the author of Proverbs. He, he is the word. He is the wisdom that the book of Proverbs speaks of. He, he, he is the, the, the wisdom that is, is so precious it's to be sought after as for hidden treasure. He is the, the wisdom that, that Proverbs uh, tells young men, instructs young men to pursue as earnestly as they would a virtuous young woman for marriage. And one of the things you see a lot of in the book of Proverbs is contrasting the wise man and the fool. There's a lot of that sort of thing that takes place there, and that's what Jesus is doing here. So I've got three points for you in the sermon this morning, contrasting the wise and the fool. And here's the first one. The fool wants to be blessed by Christ. The wise man wants to be like Christ. That's one difference between a hearer and a doer. You know, it's funny. Like, Who doesn't want to be blessed by Christ, though? Every, everybody wants to be blessed by Christ. I mean, even atheists, whether they admit it or not, they wouldn't say this, but they want to be blessed by Christ. I mean, they're, they're breathing his air. They're, they're enjoying his creation. And whether they recognize it or not, they're living in a post-resurrection world where all of Christ's enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. And so there's grace and blessing, a general common grace and blessing in that that even unbelievers enjoy and benefit from. Everyone wants to be blessed by Christ. But this isn't a contrast between people who are blessed by Christ and those who aren't. This isn't even a contrast between people who profess Christ and those who don't. This is a contrast between two people who are both blessed by Christ and who both profess Christ. Jesus says one is wise and one is a fool. One is sincere and the other is deceived. One wants the gifts, the gifts that Jesus offers, and the other one wants the giver himself and wants to be more like him. He doesn't just want his toys and his candy. He wants his care, his attention, his affection, his correction. You know, imagine for a minute if you had a father, and, um, and no, we're not about to confuse the eternal father with the eternal son, all right? They are two distinct persons, equal in power and glory, part of the same triune Godhead, but just for the illustration, okay, imagine you had a father that you never met or talked to, didn't have any, any idea about him, didn't know what his voice sounded like, didn't know how he carried some, him, himself, didn't know what he really did, but you got a goodie bag in the mail every now and then. It had all the stuff you like. It had all the things you want, but you just never had him. Would you be content with that? I mean, I hope not, right? That, that, would, that would make you the fool Jesus is talking about here. The wise man wants more than the blessings. He wants relationship with the one he knows is giving the blessing. He wants to know how he moves and operates and conducts himself so that he can learn from him how to be like him. The fool wants to be blessed by Christ. The wise man wants to be like Christ. He wants to think what he thinks. He wants to say what he says. He wants to stand for what he stands for. He wants to do what he does. 
as you all know, we have six little boys. And the younger ones want to be like the older ones, just the way that works. They want to do what they want to do. They want to go where they want to go. And I got thinking about James as I was thinking about this, Jesus' little brother. I'll bet he wanted to go wherever, everywhere Jesus went, probably follow Jesus around everywhere. This is what little brothers do, right? I bet James almost drowned a couple times, don't you? I'll give that a minute for some of you. Let that sink in. No pun intended. But wanting to be like Christ means wanting to do what he does. And we're not talking about walking on water. We're not talking about performing his miracles. That's not what we mean when we say we want to be like Jesus. Because you can, you can want to be able to do the things that he did and have his power and perform mighty acts in his name like we saw last week in the passage that precedes this one. But that still just leaves you in the camp with the fool who wants his blessings but doesn't really want to be like him. Being like him means doing what he does. And what he does is obeys the Father. That's what he does. He obeys the Father. When we look at the wise man and see that he wants to be more like Jesus, what we're looking at is obedience. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. The fool wants to know how he can get more toys and candy. Just more of what he wants. The wise man wants to know what God wants, and he wants to be that. You see that difference? And he's willing to do whatever it takes to, to be that. You know, if his eye causes him to sin, he has no problem tearing it out. He'd sooner tear it out than continue sinning against his Lord, his master. He'll go to great lengths to obey. If it means not having certain apps on your phone, or being alone with certain people or in certain places, you're willing to do that and look foolish or prudent or old-fashioned because what matters to you more than man's approval is obedience to your Lord. When you call him Lord, you mean it. You mean he has authority over you. Jesus just got done warning us in the previous verses about how not all those who say to me, Lord, Lord, right? But those who demonstrate by their obedience that Jesus is their Lord. That he has the authority to tell me how I am to live. And I willingly submit to that authority and do what he commands. Heaven is not for hearers. The sayers aren't saved. The doers are. Because they demonstrate by their behavior that something supernatural has occurred in their life. Something supernatural has taken place in them. Something has got a hold of them. The obedience that we're talking about here that Jesus commands and expects isn't something that's natural to man. You will not will yourself into it. It can't happen apart from God's saving grace in your life. Apart from the Holy Spirit convicting you of, you, convicting you of your sin and convincing you of your hell-bound direction, your rebellion against him, you can't change your course. You can't be any of these things that he says you are to be. But if that supernatural work of the Spirit has occurred in your life, you will be like the wise man who dug deep. And there's no choice for you but to build your house on that rock. And what is, the, what is that rock? What is the rock? 
people will say, if they've read their Bibles, Jesus. Jesus is the rock. And that's true. That, that's, that is an incomplete answer. Okay, so a more complete answer. It's not a wrong answer. You're exactly right. Jesus is the rock. More complete answer, though, is this. The rock is the teaching of, of the prophets and the apostles of which Christ is the cornerstone. That's the foundation of the church. We, we learned that in the book of Acts. The early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. We see that in Acts chapter 2. Because the teaching of the apostles is the these words of mine Jesus is talking about here. Hear them and obey them. Count on them. And whatever you build, build on that. He who does is wise and secure in the day of judgment when the rains and the winds come. Those who hear and don't build their life on the words that they have heard will come to ruin. The fool wants to be blessed by Christ. The wise man wants to be like Christ. And being like Christ means obeying the will of the Father. That's what he did. And if we want to be more like him, we want to do that too. Next point, contrasting the wise man who builds on the rock, the fool who builds on the sand. Next point. The fool follows the world's blueprint for life and happiness. The wise man follows God's blueprint for life and happiness. Everybody's kind of looking for the same basic things, sort of some of the same basic creature comforts in life. Where do we look to find those things? And notice these two houses, they're in the same place, okay? The, I mean, they've got to be, otherwise the same storm couldn't hit them, right? So let's imagine we're looking at neighboring houses for a minute. They're on, they live on the same cul-de-sac. And they're probably quite similar in appearance. There are more similarities than there are differences. That's for, that's for certain. We're, we're talking about subtleties here, remember. This isn't a contrast between Christians and people who want nothing to do with Christ. This is a contrast between two professing believers. So the houses, what they've built, look similar. Their religion looks similar. They, they, they sit next to each other in church on Sunday. And they're both agreeable with what, what is said. They both want the benefits and blessings of Christ, but their foundations are very different. The fool's foundation is built on something other than Christ and his teaching. They've got Jesus' doors, Jesus' windows, Holy Spirit drapes, Father floors, but there's no authority of Jesus' teaching underneath any of it. Both of these people pursue life and happiness, but the fool looks for it from the world. The wise man gets it from the word, from Christ himself. He treasures his words and delights in his law. He knows it's the law. It's the law word of God and obedience to it that brings about human life and happiness. It's the only place you can get it. The fool believes happiness is the same thing as worldly pleasure. And so he's always got one foot in and one foot out. He's at church on Sunday. It's just everything that he hears, even though he agrees with it intellectually, it doesn't make any difference in his life. He's not banking his future on it. He just wants enough Jesus to have some sense of security in the future 
while having enough of the world to make him happy now. That may be a lot of Christians you know. He wants to enjoy Christianity without being bothered with the stuff of Christianity. So he builds what looks like a Christian life. He builds something that looks like devotion to God, but it's built on sand. And in the day of judgment, great will be its fall, Jesus says. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it, verse 27. That's what happens when people supplement their lives with a little Jesus and take them like a vitamin rather than giving their lives over to the authority of Jesus. That's what happens when you follow the world's blueprint for life and happiness as someone who professes to believe in Jesus. That's what it looks like. Self-deception. You believe you have found rest in Christ while still resting in your sin. You can't rest in Christ and rest in your sin. You can't have both. Believing in Christ means being in Christ, and being in Christ looks like obeying Christ. It means submitting to him as your master and presenting yourself to him as, your sla- as his slave. When you call Jesus Lord, and use that word, when you call Jesus Lord, you're saying you are under the authority of the one you call Lord. If we were to look at this passage as parallel in Luke chapter 6, we see Jesus actually frames this as a question. Like he's surprised anyone would call him Lord and not do what he says. He says, why do you say Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I don't know you. He says elsewhere, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And your worship is in vain. Jesus is saying, the person who hears me and really hears me doesn't only hear me, but understands me and understands their very soul is at stake. And they obey. The one who does is like someone who has built his house on the rock. That's what Jesus says. That's what he says that man is like. The one who sees the urgency. The one who is not content, is not comfortable in his own sin. Who is not trying to live in both worlds, but is completely convinced of their unworthiness and who give their life over to Jesus because he's worthy. The one who hears and doesn't do, but instead hears and agrees, but goes on about his life on his own terms, that's the fool. The one who hears and doesn't do, but instead just hears, agrees, and goes on about life on their own terms, according to the world's guidance and influence, is the one who builds on the sand. Now, by contrast, the wise man doesn't just think and feel and believe the words of Jesus. He's banking everything on them, banking eternity on them. His life is about them. And where it's not, he's he's not okay with it. Where he can see in his own life he is not completely submitted to the authority of Christ, he's not okay with it. He doesn't say, well, all shucks. The wise man seeks to make every part about his life 
about Jesus' words and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because he knows in his bones that's the only source of life and happiness. It can't be found anyplace else. He's thoroughly convinced of that. So the world cannot offer what the wise man craves most. It can offer what the fool craves most because what the fool craves most is not Christ. Next point. The fool only thinks in terms of the present. The wise man has an eternal perspective. The fool builds his house faster than the wise man, I'll bet. Don't you think, don't you think he gets his house up faster? He's already moved in by the time the, the wise man gets the first stick of his built. Can you picture that? Because he was in a hurry, you know? He had an idea, he ran with it. He knew what a house looked like. The world taught him what a decent and respectable house looked like, and so he's like, make one like that. Presents it to his wife and his children. He's like, voila, you're welcome. Right? The wise man took longer because he knew what his house would house. He didn't want something he could just present to them. He knew it would need to be something that protected them. The fool doesn't bother with the foundation. It's not worth the added cost. It's not worth the added time investment. No one's going to see it anyway, right? Just work on the stuff people will see. That's what matters. The wise man says no. The wise man digs deep and spares no expense on the foundation because he knows if he doesn't, there won't be anything left to see. The rains come, the winds blow, and there's no evidence there was a house there in the first place. And what this looks like practically, the fool being in a hurry, is always being attracted to what's quick and easy. You know, don't we do that? Doesn't the world teach us to do that? To find the, the, the quick fix? That's what the fool wants. The world teaches us how to do that. The quick and easy is the way to go. Because the world praises superficiality. You know, just slap some lipstick on that pig and call her pretty. We're not taught to value Delayed gratification. We're not taught to value sweat equity. You know, anything worth having, we want to have right now. We want our food fast. We want our results fast. We want our returns on investment fast. We're not taught to think in terms of generations and heritage anymore. We're not counseled to think that way. We're taught to think only in terms of our short, selfish, disposable little lives that we fill with disposable little things that will die right along with us. And so the fool lives only for the present. He doesn't think any further out than that. But the wise man, he's playing the long game. He thinks in terms of eternity. And why? Because he knows Jesus. He doesn't just know he came and died on a cross. That's a matter of historical fact. Anybody who can read a book can find that out. He doesn't just believe that he came and he died on a cross for sin. 
That's theology. A lot of people believe a lot of theological claims. No, he, he doesn't just know Jesus came, that he died, that he died on a cross for sin. He knows that Jesus came and died on a cross for his sin because he knows he's a sinner in need of forgiveness, in need of grace, in need of mercy. Somewhere along the way, by the grace of God, he knew that there was a cloud of God's sure and certain judgment, eternal judgment against his soul. And he knew he was undone. He knew Jesus died for his sin. Think of that song that we sing sometimes. It says, uh, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there on that cross until it was accomplished. I know that his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. The wise man knows Jesus. Because he does, it makes a difference in his life. He doesn't just think in terms of the present. He, he reflects on the past. Eternity past, even. When God says he knew him before the foundation of the earth and chose to set his love upon him. And he thinks about the future. He has hope for the future when the dead are raised and Jesus returns to dwell among his people on a renewed and glorified earth. It's that eternal perspective that drives the wise man, drives what he does in the present. That's how he determines what his life is to be about. So when the rains and the winds of judgment come and beat on that man's house, Jesus says it will be unmoved. Because its foundation was set on the rock of Christ and his teaching. The blood of the lamb will have been wiped over the doorposts of his house so that the wrath of God passes over him. Now here's a little soul searching. Because that's what Jesus is calling for here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The title of the sermon is, How Can I Know I'm Going to Heaven? How can you know you're going to heaven? So how can you know if you're on the narrow road or the broad road? How, how can you know if I have good fruit or bad fruit, if my foundation is rock or if it's sand? Remember, Jesus' words of warning aren't for people with zero interest in his teaching. They're for people who are interested. They have expressed some interest. And the warning is for the tire kickers and the test drivers. It's for the, the people who say, yeah, but. It's, it's, it's for the ones who want to make sure there's a money-back guarantee and a clear, spelled-out return policy. They'll sign a lease on Christianity, but they won't buy. That's who Jesus is talking to. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. So how can you know? Well, let me ask you this. Does the idea of Jesus having authority over your life bother you? Do you get irritated with the commands of Scripture? Do you find them burdensome and so restrictive and you wanna, you're tempted to kind of try to find ways out of them, to have one foot in, one foot out? Do you feel like Jesus and his commands 
are keeping you from living the life you really want. A lifestyle that lets you be a little gentler with your sin and doesn't call you to cut ties with the love of the world and its pleasures. You ask yourself, what is at the bottom? What's at the bottom of my life? That's what you're building on. So what is it? What's in the basement of your being? And then what's underneath that? What is your life about? Let me put it this way to help you find it. I heard R.C. Sproul uh, ask this once. He said, if you found out tonight that there is no God, not something that made you sort of doubt it and question it, but there was some level of certainty. It's definitive. Like, now here I am living in this world and everything I've believed is completely false. There is no God. How would your life change? Would it change? Or would it look exactly the way it does now? Are you already living as if there is no God? That's where you can find an answer. That's how you can know what's underneath this life that you're building. And we've potentially got two types of people in this room this morning, both hearing the same message. Those who know Jesus is talking about them. You are the hearer. And for those, you need to close the deal with Christ before you leave here this morning. I would invite you to come talk with me after the service. Come talk to David, who's another elder in this church, so that we can pray with you that today may be the the day of salvation for you. That your eyes would be open to the truth, that you would come to know your need of God's grace and mercy on your soul. Be a beautiful thing. That's one type of person. The second type of person is those who are worried Jesus might be talking about them. And he's not. And so you need to leave here reassured and comforted by him this morning. I have to talk to both of you at the same time, so it's your job to be honest with yourself and figure out which one am I. Am I the fool or the wise? The good news is, whichever you are, the call to action is the same. (laughs) Having been confronted with the sinfulness of your sin and the holiness of Almighty God, and knowing that judgment is coming, you cry out to God like Isaiah did. In chapter 6, he says, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And you go confessing that you believe on the Lord Jesus and that guilt will be removed from you and you can know that your sin has been atoned for. Now, Jesus didn't come to tell cool stories and perform cool miracles. He came to rescue the world out of sin. He died for sin. So the question is simple. Did he die for your sin? That's how you can know you're going to heaven. Because he's the only one deserving of it. He's the only one worthy of it. His righteousness is the only way in. Has his righteousness been given to you by grace? Have you placed your faith, your trust, your hope, your confidence in him and in him alone? 
Or have you placed it someplace else? And a foundation built on sand. If you come to him broken, humbled, surrendered, calling him Lord and meaning it, recognizing that he has authority over your life and you are to do as he says, y'all listen, he will not turn you away. Isn't that great news? He won't turn you away. Y'all, he doesn't turn away willing servants. He only turns away unwilling ones. So whether this is the first time or the 731st time, turn to Jesus today and say, I'm willing. My life is yours. I am your servant. Don't get used to the gospel, y'all. Don't ever get used to it. Don't ever get so used to hearing it that you don't respond to it the same way you did the first time you believed it. In repentance and faith. Don't be underwhelmed by it. It is astonishing. I look at myself, I see my own sin, and it grieves me to the point of running back to Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's never enough. That's what we should do. It's never one and done. It is as unto justification. But God chooses to work in our lives for our good, to make us holy, to make us more like Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Give it to me. You were here. Give it to me. Obey. We want to be like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He obeyed the will of the Father. We want to be like that. We can't get there apart from him, apart from his grace working in our lives. Someone who examines himself, as we've been urged to do by Jesus, is confronted with their sin and their ugliness and their unworthiness all over again, and they're undone. And that's a welcomed exercise for the Christian. We don't stiff-arm the interrogation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is a welcome interrogation. It is a welcome exercise in the life of a Christian who is serious about Jesus being his Lord and master and having ultimate authority over his life and desiring to do what is pleasing to the Father. Recognizing that all over again, the ugliness, the unworthiness, compels them to go running to Jesus to be reminded of the grace and forgiveness they have received. To be reassured that redemption has been accomplished for them and applied to them. That's where they go. That's how the reminder comes. That they have hope of life everlasting. That's where they find peace and rejoice in their salvation continually. That's someone who understands the gospel. Someone who doesn't ignore their sin but can stare at it head on and know that that was paid for on the cross. And because it was, it can never come to me again. My sin has been placed on Jesus. It's done. It's dealt with. His righteousness has been given to me. 
That exchange has been made and nothing will take it back. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand, he says, John chapter 10. He redeems and he redeems to the utmost. But what reminds us of that fact and lets us rest in it, what helps us rest in Christ and not just rest in our sin is seeing our sin. How much of it is still in us? How much indwelling sin still exists in our lives and not being okay with it? And it's that reassurance we get when we go back to the cross, when we beg for forgiveness, that we, like Isaac, like we looked at earlier, where we're reminded God's made promises he intends to keep. He is a good father. He saves to the uttermost. That's someone who's done the hard work of digging deep and building their life on the rock and not just sand, not on an empty profession, but on the very word of God. May that be true of all the saints at King's Church. And may Christ be glorified in our obedience to his words. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, as we've looked at your word this morning, we know how far short we've fallen. God, we know how little we've even tried, how little we've considered your word and your ways and your expectations of us. But God, we delight in the fact that Jesus obeyed perfectly. And Lord, I pray by your spirit we would all want to be like him. That he who has gone before us, whose, whose righteousness is ours by faith, would be our model, our example. That, Lord, we wouldn't look to the world for what will bring us life, what will bring us comfort and security and peace, but we would look to you. We would look to your word. Lord, as we become afraid of things going on around us, things that are changing in the world as culture is shifting between our feet. Let us be grounded in Christ and Christ alone. Your promise to us in your word. Those who are sealed in the book of life because of the blood of the Lamb. Lord, I pray that we would leave here today knowing who you are, what you have said, and believing it down to our very bones, that it would bring healing where there needs to be healing, that it would be, bring conviction where there needs to be conviction, and that in all of us, no matter where we are, that it would bring about true and new repentance and faith. God, would you bless us with that? Help us, Lord, to enjoy the rest of this day that you have set apart for your worship and our rest Give us that rest that we need. Help us come into this new week renewed with clear, clear vision, clearer purpose. May it make a difference in our own lives, the lives of our families, and those that we'll meet this week, those that we'll meet on Friday at the Spring Fling. We pray your blessings upon that. Bless us as we go out from your presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.